0: Morning. All right, turn me, please, to Genesis fifteen. I guess we're just past halfway point in our study of Genesis this this spring, winter spring. So Genesis fifteen, beginning in verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look, now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And so he said to him, Bring me a three year old heifer, a three year old female goat, a three year old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each beside each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, No, certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that, behold, There appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And we're going to look at all that today. All right, (laughs) let's uh, start with seeking the Lord first. Lord God, thank you again for your word and for its perfection. Uh, Thank you for uh, your wisdom to record these things for us to look at today, uh, all with the express purpose of knowing who you are. In every way and everything, in everything we consider and everything we discuss, Lord, uh, we just want to know you better. We want to have a greater revelation of the magnitude, the magnificence, and the glory of you. So bless our time this morning, and may our hearts be open and willing to hear uh, what you have for us this morning in this story of Abram and his life. Thank you again for your mercy. Uh, thank you for Abram, for how you used him at that time, and what we have today because of Abram. Uh, so we thank you again for your sovereignty, your mercy, your grace, your power, and your love. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> some complicated things here. I'm going to try not to be redundant, to be completely honest with you guys. We kind of looked in verse 12, that God's promised Abram that he's going to get the land. And now again, he's talking about the land. And God's going to, in chapter 17, it's going to come up again. God's dealing with Abram and his promises, and this Abram struggles with accepting God's plan for Abram. <clears throat> but it begins very kind of, I don't want to say complicated, but it's just kind of interesting. If you remember last chapter, God leaves Abram and his, and his men through a great victory, right? They defeat the guys who captured Lot and his family, recover Lot. Um, they get all this, this great victory. And then Abram goes before Melchizedek, the, the king of Salem, and not only does he, he worship God, but he receives a blessing from Melchizedek. And then the kings, who, who he helped uh, rescue and also def, def, have victory with, offer him all kinds of wealth. And he says, nope, I want nothing from you. Just give me back the people that I rescued, and we're going to call it even, we're good. And the next thing that happens is, God comes to Abram and says, do not be afraid. And I was trying to figure out, what is Abram afraid of? If anything, he should be full of joy and rejoicing and confidence. I've just swiped out these guys. We've had great victory. we recovered us. Uh, my son, my, my, my brother's son, Lot, who's like a son to me. What's Abram afraid of? So I tried to come up with a list of possibilities for us to consider because the reality is, even in our own lives, when God gives us victories, sometimes there's still doubt, isn't there? Sometimes there's still fear. So what, what could these things be? Well, the first thing uh, could be vengeance of the people that Abram just defeated. He's going to go back now, going to go back to his tent, to his fields, to all the things that he has. He has no city, right? He's Abram's still a pilgrim. So is he afraid that after this, he needs protection? Because what does God say? I'm your shield. Abram did the right thing, didn't he? He avoided being unequally yoked with those who try to offer him things and try and make him a part of it, right? Remember, we gave you this, you, you owe us now. Abram said, nope, I don't want any part of you. Does he doubt that decision? Does he look at all they have now and how he, how much he left behind? Is there doubt in his mind? Hey, maybe I should have grabbed something. Is Abram just looking around at what he's experienced since God called him out of Ur? He's gone down to Egypt, he had that whole situation. He's not always been obedient to God. He's not always been the most honest man and now he's had to have this whole situation uh, with the recovery of Lot and the the battles and things, maybe he's thinking, hey, you know what? This ain't all I thought it was gonna be. This land you promised, God, ain't so fun. Where's all the blessings that you promised? Maybe he's just afraid God's not gonna keep his word. It's been long. Remember, we looked at this in chapter 12. Abram is never gonna see the promise of God. Abram is never going to see this land be his. All God does is say, look at all this. This is going to belong to your descendants one day. But for you, go take care of the sheep. Maybe after what Abram's just been through in the battles to recover Lot, his eyes have been opened to the wickedness of men. That happens in battle. You see things and wickedness that you didn't know existed. It is terrifying. That's why so many people who come back from war don't talk about it, because they can't. It's too hard, and and I, I can't speak. I've never been to war. But I can only imagine what Abram has seen and experienced in the wickedness of that day. So what's Abram afraid of? I don't know. But God comes to Abram. Do you see that? We don't see Abram on his knees going, God, I'm so afraid, help me. God loves Abram so intimately, he sees in his heart, and God is the one who comes to Abram. God is the one who says, Abram, do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your great reward. Don't worry about these things. What are we afraid of today? What do we worry about today? What do we stress about today? I mean, I'll be honest with you, ever since I became a parent, which was 22 years ago, there have been times of terror with the burden and responsibility of what I have, right? I can't farm, can't hunt. (laughs) Stuff goes bad, my family's in trouble. Be like, James, Joe, uh, let's go hunting. I'll just watch. Um, but, But, you know, all that stuff weighs on us. But here's the beauty of God in this moment. It's God who comes to Abram. It's God who comes to Abram. And what does Abram need to do? He needs to listen. Do we listen? When God knows your heart, when God sees your struggle, even if it's completely unjustified and unnecessary, do we take the time to listen and hear that voice of God that comes from the word of God and the promises of God and the experiences we've had with God, just like Abram has? Do we take the time to go, that's right, you are my shield. You are my reward. God is his shield. God is the protector, and the provider. I loved. Um, I'm, I'm. It's. It's not as profound maybe as, as I thought when I copied it. But in his devotion, in his commentary, Albert Burns Barnes said it this way. But Yahweh has chosen him, and here engages himself to stand between him and all harm, and himself to be to him all good, God comes to Abram and says, I'm your shield, I'm your reward. Abram doesn't even need to ask for it. Do you know God that way? I don't always, to be honest, don't always. It's not always my first thought. But it should be, shouldn't it? Think about all that those two statements mean. And I, and I cannot articulate them. Uh, I, I, was, I was, hang on, how do, how do I say this other than just saying it? God is a protector. God is a shield. He is the protection. He is the hedge. Though my enemies surround me, I have God. Though problems and trials burden me, I have God. He is between me and them. What do I want out of this? What do I feel like I'm missing? Does Abram look back and see all the wealth that they got after that victory and go, man, maybe I should have taken that. And do we forget that God himself is the great reward? Knowing God is it. That's the beauty and the power and the incredible story for the Christian. Why we get to live life of liberty and hope and peace. Because we have God. And all that's in this world that's going to burn up. And you can't take it with you and all that stuff and all the things we look at the Joneses and I wish they had and, oh man, I wish I had a new car and all those things. Why can't I have a bigger house or how are we going to do this and how are we going to get by on that? All those things we're supposed to forget about because he is our great reward. He is what we have and he is all we need because none of this matters. That's why Christians get to live the life of liberty and peace and now get to focus on mercy and compassion towards others, right? Because we're freed from that burden. Turn with me to Psalm 37, please. I think we probably know this Psalm really well. Um But I felt it was it was a a nice um companion to these thoughts. Psalm thirty seven. Psalm of David. Do not fret because of evildoers, do not be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Excuse me, delight yourself also in the Lord, and also He shall also give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. but Those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more but the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. In days of famine, they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadow, shall vanish into the smoke. They shall vanish away. I'm going to stop there. I could keep going. Um, But you see the promises for having a relationship with God, all that comes from that, when he's the reward, when he's our focus, when he's our joy when He is our joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength, not what we don't have, not what we didn't get. It's an imperative. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's an imperative that we daily and consistently remind ourselves that he is our reward and blessing, not trophies here, and certainly not worries here. We can rest our head at night because we are guaranteed our relationship with the God of the universe is secure, and he is the one that brings us all hope. Let our testimony be the one that's not a fear, for he is our shield. Let our testimony not be a fear for recognition, for he is our reward. Let it not be a fear of poverty or need. He is what we need, and he gives himself abundantly and generously. So when God speaks to Abe, We need to be listening. We need to be listening. And so going back to Genesis, in his maturity, right, Um, Abram has just a great spiritually mature response, the perfect one that every Christian should have. He says, God, what will you give me? I know my humor is dry. It's not that bad. God, what will you give me? I'm your shield and reward. Great. What will you give me? You know, it sounds childish, doesn't it? it sounds petulant. I want, I want, I want, I want. I want more. But, you know, I saw something deeper in this when I looked at it. And don't forget God's patience with Abram. Through the whole life of Abram, God is consistently patient with Abram. So though we can justifiably say, Abram lacks the mature faith to just say, you said it, God, I believe it, let's go. He still goes, what are you going to give me? It's about Abram still looking to God, though. Here's here's the support and the encouragement in this. When you're struggling with these things, and you say, God, what will you give me? You made this promise to me, but what are you going to give me so that I know it's still to God that he looks. There's going to be a point later on where Abram's going to take some things into his own hands. He ends up with Ishmael, right? That's another problem another day. But right now, Abram does still look to God to be his source. So the question is, is it okay to challenge God? Why not? Why not? That's how you deepen your relationship. I think I've talked about this a million times, but I feel very, very passionately that it's the wrestling with God, right? It's the wrestling with God that deepens your intimacy. If you just take things at this kind of superficial, da-la-di-da kind of airheaded way, how do you actually get to know God better? It's when you go to God when you're struggling, going, God, I don't understand this. I believe in you, but I'm not seeing it. Help me see. Help me understand. God, I want to know what you're doing. That's how you get to know God better. There is a difference between a doubt that denies God or God's promise and and a questioning and a struggle that still desires and hopes for God's promise. Abram's still looking to God. He's his sole source of promise in this. So you can wrestle with God. It's okay. God expects it. He knows we're not perfect. He knows we struggle with these things. That's why he went to Abram in the first place question is can you accept what he offers so Abram struggles with God but God says look don't worry about Eliezer that's not going to be your your offspring that's not going to be your heir I'm still going to bring one from your own body I forgot to write down how many years this has been in Abram's life since he called him out of Ur but I do know that it's still 15 years before Isaac is going to be born And we talked about this before, the patient waiting for God. The patient waiting for God. We cannot compromise what we expect from God and take things in our own hands. God reminds, I still have a plan. Actually, there's going to be a reason why some of this happens that we'll see come up in the the chapter. But God is faithful to his commitment and to his promise. He, He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There's no shadow of churning. God's promises are true. If you feel God's given you a promise, then just wait on it. We have to trust and wrestle with him if you have to. But do not take matters into our own hands. We cannot do that because that only brings disaster and chaos. Look what God tells him. Now, remember before, was it two chapters ago or last chapter? God says, your people are going to be numbered greater than the sand. You can't number sand. You can't number sand. Now he says, look at the stars. See the patience of God with Abram? Look towards the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. There's a magnitude of the abundance of God's grace and blessings that those who understand it realize that it actually can't be measured. You can't measure it. You can't count it. You have to look at these things. Everything that we have, God has given us to understand the magnitude of his grace. But I, I kind of wonder, if we're focusing on counting the stars, are we actually missing what the, what the meaning of the fact that there's so many stars you can't count them means? Why are we sitting around counting stars and trying to figure out how many there are? Missing the point. Missing the point. God says, count the stars if you're able. Well, obviously you're not. So why are you trying? You're missing the point that God's telling you. Don't sit there and be minuscule, micromanaging, trying to count everything. Is this a blessing? Is this not a blessing? Is this one? Is this one? Is this one? We're being small-minded. We're being short-sighted. God gives markers. God says, look and count if you can. This made me think um, about the signs that God gives to show what he does. And I always love the the, the sign to me, um, and, I, and you may have something different, um, but my heart always goes to the empty tomb. I still see the same same, the promise of God. What are we trying to measure? What are we trying to understand how great God is and what he does? like Abram looked at the stars, like Abram looked at the sand, we get to look at the empty tomb. Remember who God is and what he does and how he does things. Remember the magnitude and the power of his blessing. Now what we have in Jesus Christ. Now moving down to verse 6, it says, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Let's be crystal clear. Um, Abram is not righteous because he has faith. That is not righteousness. But because he has faith, righteousness is what we call imputed to him. It's put upon him. It's recognized by God. Not because he's qualified as righteous, but because he has faith in God. And that's what God does for us right now. This is a picture and a sign for us so that when Jesus came, we could understand that God imputes the righteousness of Christ on us because of faith. It's not because I believe in Jesus and then I act good enough and I earn righteous favor with God and He sees the good things I do. He goes, okay, now you're righteous. It's an imputation, which means something that I don't have is put upon me from somewhere else. Here, Abram gives us the picture. We still have a lot to go through with Abram's life and, and a lot to go with the life, uh, situation with Isaac. So a lot of the, the New Testament uh, verses that substantiate that, Romans 4, Galatians 3, and, and Hebrews 6, a lot of those spaces, or Hebrews 6 through 10, really, uh, we'll probably look at those in the coming weeks. So I don't want to bog down into those too much this week. But I just want to have, jump on this reminder because it's, a, it's one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Abram's life. He believed in the Lord, and he, as in God, accounted it to him for righteousness. Abram did not earn righteousness, and he is not righteous now. He is not righteous, but his faith allows God to say, I'm going to look at you righteously because you have faith in me, because you trust me, because you believe in me. And that's what we get through Jesus Christ. So Abe's at peace now, right? Everything's good? You think after this, like, you know, you know, when when God's gonna destroy Sodom, like you think by then he would have been like tired of Abram and these battles. Like it's like, Abram, how many times are we gonna have this conversation? The patience of God. So now Abram says, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? As in, your word isn't good enough. So what does God do? God does not need A covenant. Realize that. God's word is truth. When God speaks, it is. And that's the end of the conversation. So why is God doing this? Is for Abram. So God tells Abram to get these animals. The three-year-old heifer, the three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. This was a common practice in these days. This is how people made a covenant with each other. And normally you'd cut the animals in half and both parties making the commitment to each other would walk through them together implying if I break my side of the covenant may this be done to me. A little more than a handshake. Right? A little more than a handshake. You know why? Because when you break your covenant and that guy comes to cut you in half everyone's going to go, yeah, we'll hold them down. Because you got it coming. You broke your promise. That's the severity of that covenant. Don't do it if you don't mean it. But for Abram's sake, God says, cut the animals in half. The animals he tells him to get are not the same that are used in the temple. This is not a symbol of burnt sacrifice and offering because they're different. What's used in the burnt sacrifice? A bull. What's a bull? It's a boy cow. What's a heifer? It's a girl cow. They're not the same. We can establish that those are different things, right? Boy cow, girl cow, they're different, right? We're all going in agreement with that? All right, good. We don't need to discuss any further, right? We're in agreement, right? Okay, good. All right, good. But here's what's interesting. He says, get me a three-year-old. Get me a three-year-old. Because a three-year-old is an indication of maturity. That's at the point that the animal's considered grown. How many years did Jesus have to do his ministry? Three years. Where did Jesus go after that? The cross. Was that not the symbol of God's covenant with us? That he would sacrifice his only son? That whoever believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life? Is that not the sign? Who passes through these these animals? Is Abram is Abram part of this covenant? Absolutely not. If you're God, would you make a covenant with a guy like Abram? Not the kind of guy I want to a deal with. He's, I don't trust Abram. No, thank you. All God needs is God, and that's for Abram's sake. Only God passes through. What part did we play? In Christ's crucifixion. You know, I I don't know if this makes sense. (laughs) I'm going to try. But who cut the animals in half? Abraham. Who nailed Jesus to the cross? Man. Who passed through the animals? God. Who died on the cross and went to the tomb and rose again? Alone. Jesus. That's a covenant with God. God makes a covenant, it cannot cannot be broken. Our covenant with God is dependent solely on God. As it was with Abram here, and as it is with us now. It is solely based on the work of Jesus Christ, not a thing we do. All right. So Abram's still hung up on this land thing. And God says in verse 13 know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. When God says no certainly, you're going to accept that as a fact, right? But what, what God says, look at what he says in verse 14. I'm going to judge that nation after 400 years and afterward they're going to come out with great possessions. Remember the big picture of God, right? The big picture plan of God. God is doing all this because he's got a bigger picture. He's going to make a nation. He's going to bring the law. He's going to bring his Messiah. God is outside of time. We're always looking in the moment. God, what's happening next? God is just letting Abram know what's going to happen 400 years from now. Never mind thousands of years. But part of God's plan for the Israel nation that he's creating requires that they go through this trial. Abram is still a pilgrim in this land. Now, look at verse 16. God says this. Now, God tells Abram in 15, look, you're going to go to your fathers in peace, and you're going to be buried at a good old age. In fact, we looked at that land in in, uh, chapter 12. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Look what he says. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites, what does that have to do with Abram and the children of God and and the Israelites? Well, we would think normally nothing. But again, the big picture with God. God has a plan for the Amorites as well. The Amorites are actually going to be the ones who do not allow the Israelites to pass through. And eventually in history, the Amorites are no more. The Amorites are no more. You will not find Amorites anywhere. So the question is, why is God giving the Amorites so much time? Is it the mercy of God? It certainly could be. We know that God is patient. A thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand years. It's the patience of God. But God has a plan for them that's going to come to fruition so now let's, put the, let's do the math and put all this together. We consider Abram, his descendants, the land, the hundreds of years, and then God says you can't have all that now because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Have you ever thought that what you're waiting on, God, has nothing to do with you? That's a big, right? That's like, wait a minute. You're doing something over here in town with those people, and that's why we can't, we're, we're finding these stumbling blocks. We don't know, right? We don't know. But there's always the potential in the big picture of the church or in our own individual lives. What is God doing somewhere else that has absolutely nothing to do with us, but requires us to wait? You ever think about that? I'll encourage you. As you wait on God, don't close your mind to the opportunity and the potential that it has nothing to do with you. He just has a big picture plan, and your part has to wait. He's doing something with somebody else. Be patient. Don't be the petulant child like Abram. Trust God. Maybe it has something to do with you. Maybe it's a discipline issue. Maybe it's a sin issue. I don't know. But I certainly can see here there's the potential and the opportunity that it has nothing to do with you. So do do we shake our fist at God and say, how dare you make me wait? Or just say, God, I trust you. God, I trust you. I see what you've done throughout history. I've seen what you've done. I know who you are. So now I trust you. If you need me to wait, I don't know why away because you are god you are my reward now verse 17 it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces i would love to skip this entirely because i don't know exactly what it means but i'm not going to do that i will tell you these two things one for me personally when Scripture gives an image and it's not crystal clear exact what it means, I don't like to jump up and say, well, this is what it means, because I don't know, and I'm not going to be that arrogant. Like, plenty of arrogance in other parts of my life. I'm not going to be arrogant right there. However, I will tell you what I think it means, and there are different opinions on this, but because of the context and where this is happening and what God is telling Abram about the 400 years in serving the Egypt And then they're going to come out. The burning oven, to me, is the picture of their labor. They are going to be making bricks in an oven. That's what they're going to do for 400 years when they become enslaved. So there's a picture there of their suffering that's going to come. And I see the burning torch is God leading them out. That's what it means to me in the context. If you see something else, that's great. I might even love to hear it from you if you you have something that you think it is. Um, I, don't, I don't see the relationship. Some people think it has something to do with a, a picture, a premonition of the burning bush. I personally don't see that. That doesn't mean it's wrong. I'm just saying I don't, I don't see that. If you see something else that encourages you and inspires you, then that's awesome. But because of the context, this is what I see. The suffering, the work that they're going to have to do, the labor that they're going to be enslaved to, and then God's presence, God leading them out because he's keeping his word to Abram. So we know this in verse 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, from 18 to 21, all this land is only under the possession of Israel from David into Solomon, under Solomon. After that, Israel never has all this land before or after. Never ended to this day. They've never had this land. What is the the urgency with having land? I think that's the other big question I have in this. What's the big stress with having to have land? You need a place to be a nation. You have to be identified. You have to exist somewhere. And this is where God has planned them to be. Keep in mind, I've I've said this multiple times, Abram is a pilgrim. Do you know what we are today right now? We're pilgrims. This is not our home. We get to churches that we get to meet in. So it's symbolic and it's a picture and it's an experience of what it's going to be like in the fullness of God when we're where we're supposed to be, when we have our promised land. But we're pilgrims like Abram. Keep in mind, don't, hold on to this. The church is a nation. The church does have a place. It's not here. We have a place that we're going to be where we'll all be gathered and it's paradise, and it's amazing, and I can't even describe it and do it justice. But you know what? We do have a place. We do have a place that God's prepared for us. But keep in mind that it's God who establishes, confirms, and upholds his covenant. We have no part in it other than enjoying enjoying it and being the recipient. And with Christ, it's when he said, this is my blood. This is how I make a covenant with you. I'll close with this thought. No, certainly. I am your shield. I am your reward. Let's pray. After I pray, we're going to start uh, corporate prayer. So, did you explain corporate prayer? Yeah. All right, I'll talk about it after I close. Lord God, we thank you so much. Uh, I know I could not do... Uh, adequately um, all that's in this passage. There's so much to learn from your word in every way. Um, Thank you that it is inexhaustible. Thank you again for your wonderful power and mercy. And we see in these stories of Abram and how you made a covenant with him and you kept it. And this nation exists today that you started with Abram and you have a plan and a purpose for them. And you have made us one with you because of the covenant of the New Testament with our Lord Jesus Christ. Through His blood that was sacrificed for us, and we know certainly, without any doubt, You alone are our shield, and You alone are our great reward. You are all we need. You are all we desire. May our hearts be fixed and steadfast on that, and not be distracted and discouraged uh, by this world and how it tries to just delude us and uh, lead us away from You. May we stay fixed on the promise that we have of who you are, and we have you in fullness. Fullness. God, you've given yourself completely to us. We are in awe at the mystery of knowing who you are, that you've revealed this to us. Thank you, Lord God. We exalt you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, We'll do about...